And good afternoon, a little bit after 1 o'clock, Friday afternoon in town. Hi, hello, howdy. Michael Benner with Intervision till 2 o'clock this afternoon. Nice to be with you. Happy Friday. And uh, happy KPFK. Appreciate you sticking around after the news and uh, and uh, sitting back, settling in, hopefully. A lot of car traffic, of course, this time of day and every day listening to KPFK. Intervision now for the next hour is a program heard in one form or another, Monday through Friday. And uh, it's a program about spirituality, mostly. program about, well, philosophy and comparative religion, especially about the, I call it the ageless wisdom. It's not a term I made up, certainly. The ancient wisdom or Prisca Theologia, the secret teachings of, of all times and uh, also self-realization and the development of consciousness, another area we like to focus in on, which is essentially, who are you and what are you for? <laughs> uh, a look at uh, why we think and feel and act the way we do. That's uh, our topic every Friday, especially on Intervision. We have a guest for you today, but uh, those of you on the Hollywood Freeway on the 101, uh, know how bad the traffic is, super traffic jam there today. Actually, we encountered one of our own this morning. So your basic Friday in Los Angeles. So Lewis will be in here in a few minutes. And uh, let me introduce him, even though he's not here yet, and set up the program, and then he'll slide in hopefully in 10 or 15 minutes, and we'll pick up the discussion. You know... I, I guess it was uh, really quite late in life when I began to call myself uh, a student of philosophy or even a philosopher. Never really related much to philosophy in high school or or in college. And maybe some of you have heard me say this before. I I guess I, I like so many people, had a sense coming out of high school and then again out of college that philosophy was just pretty much what whatever a bunch of bright guys wrote down, but uh, there really wasn't much cohesive in it, that philosophy could be, uh, you know, just whatever you think. Sort of like the Bush administration and its uh, sense of truthiness. And I sure hope Stephen Colbert gets credit for nailing that early in the game, that these guys in Washington, it's, it's, you, know, you say to yourself, oh, Bush and Gonzalez and Cheney and Libby, these guys are pathological liars. You know, it may be more than just being pathological liars. It may be, uh, uh, a sociopathic or psychopathic inability to know the difference between something that's true and something that's not. Because again, these aren't really bright guys. Um, you know, Bush is the decider, but he's not the reader, and he's certainly not the thinker. These guys, as Colbert has pointed out, really aren't interested in truth or facts or anything objective or, or verifiable or even consensus. They just have truthiness, whatever feels right. And, and I guess, <laughs> I guess that's the way I felt about philosophy for a long time. And then as a journalist, I became more interested increasingly in the why behind the news stories that I reported year after year after year. 
and I would get on the radio, and, and I worked in the city for years as a commercial broadcaster, and, and in Detroit before that, and in Lansing, Michigan as a state capital correspondent, even as a young man. And Increasingly, I became interested in the whys behind the news stories I was reporting. I haven't talked about this in a long time, but for me it was really an interesting uh, process of evolution. Uh, for example, in the city of Los Angeles, there are, on average, three murders a day. And depending on what else is in the news, you can turn on the television, the local news uh, reports, and again, depending on what else is there, they just might tell you that there were two or three or four murders today in Los Angeles. That's pretty much the way it comes down. A thousand murders a year, 1,200 murders a year, but... You know, as the guy writing the news story and telling the news, I became increasingly interested in the why. Like, okay, statistically, you know, good evening, here's the news. Statistically, you know, three, maybe four people were slaughtered today in Los Angeles. Much of it in gang violence, almost all of it between people who know each other, not strangers. So let's fill in the blank. Here's a name, here's an age, here's a circumstance, but never a why. Never a look at why is America so violent? Why is there so much murder in this nation? They just don't look at that. You know, of all the W's you learn in journalism, the why is the one that tends to get ignored. Because you have to think, you have to analyze, you have to... Uh, sometimes even express an opinion. And there have always been these policies of objectivity that get in the way of the truth. Well, then I discovered philosophy, and philosophy is the search for truth. And I went, wow, nobody ever told me that before. I thought it was just philosophy was whatever you felt like saying, truthiness, <laughs> you know. Well, there is, or certainly has been, in many of our lives, a fellow who, here in Los Angeles, one of the greatest contemporary philosophers, in terms of the esoteric stuff, there are certainly many great philosophers, notable philosophers, women and men, from Western civilization in the 20th century, but really the master of the esotericist, which is really the veiled, deep, allegorical, metaphorical mysteries is Manly P. Hall, and that's who we're going to talk about today. Again, we're padding a little bit, because uh, our author, our biographer, is stuck in traffic, so I'm going to set up the show a bit, and as soon as Lewis comes, we'll, we'll bring him in studio and let him detail what is like seven or eight years of uh, research in writing and now publishing. It's not out yet, but it will be soon. The definitive biography of Manly Palmer Hall. That's who I'm talking about. The fellow who, some 80 years ago, before he was even 30 years of age, wrote the magnum opus of the perennial philosophy, the ancient philosophy, the ageless wisdom, Prisca Theologia, whatever you want to call it, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, published in 1927 or 28, I guess it was 1928, by a man who uh, was about 27 years old when the book came out. 
The Secret Teachings of All Ages, a big book, an expensive book, and yet uh, a book that, uh, well, anybody that's, I'll say, it, I'll say it this way, if you've been to the Bodhi Tree more than three times, you probably own it. And uh, again, the magnum opus, I would say, the big deal the chief work that any serious student of the perennial philosophy or esoteric philosophy, the ageless wisdom, has to have. Well, Manley, um, of course, in addition to publishing The Secret Teachings of All Ages, founded an organization called PRS for the Philosophical Research Society. I know you've been by it. Maybe you've been to it. There's a sphinx in the front yard, pretty hard to miss, on Los Feliz just up from Griffith Park. Actually, the cross street is Griffith Park Boulevard, but if you know where Los Feliz crosses the uh, 5 Freeway and, and Riverside Drive and where the big fountain is as you go into Griffith Park, just up the hill from there, just west of there, on the top of that little rise on Los Feliz, since the late 1920s has been the Philosophical Research Society, where Manley lectured for years and years on the secret teachings that he had written about. Well, Lewis's biography, really the first serious and definitive work, um, is called The Master of the Mysteries, The Secret Life of Manley Palmer Hall. And again, I'll find out for sure when Lewis gets here, but... Uh, I know he's he's got a copyright date, and so he's protected now. It's about to be published. They just decided on the title. There are several different working titles, and uh, we'll find out exactly when it'll be available at a bookstore near you. But uh, you might want to write this down. Master of the Mysteries, The Secret Life of Manly Palmer Hall. So... Here we have Manly Palmer Hall, who really dedicated a, a, a long life, 90 years, to searching for philosophical truth. And what Lewis has done as a Pulitzer Prize-winning Los Angeles Times reporter, spending nearly a decade since Manley's death. Well, Manley died about 17 years ago. But I think Lewis has been working for almost a year on uh, this biography, and it's it's uh, it's very complete and we'll find out more from Lewis when he gets here, and we'll open up the telephones at the time. But uh, I wonder just how many people listening now, I bet a goodly percentage of you have been to the Philosophical Research Society maybe 20-plus years ago when Manley was still doing the Sunday lecture. And you know what I like? <laughs> One of the things, wasn't it like a dollar to see Manley? I think it was like, I don't think it ever got above one dollar. Just a... Again, he had his own auditorium there, and it sat, uh, I don't know, several hundred people at least, maybe 300, 400 people, nice auditorium. And he'd go to see Manley on a Sunday afternoon, and as I recall, it was a buck. Maybe it went up as high as 2 or $3 uh, in the 80s, but uh, what an amazing guy. What an amazing guy. So here's two books I want you to know about. If all of this is new to you, if you've never heard of The Secret Teachings of All Ages, uh, you got to score a copy of that. And, uh, again, there are editions of The Secret Teachings written by Manley P. Hall, published 80 years ago, editions that are several hundred dollars. I think the Golden Jubilee edition now is... Uh, 
$600, something like that. And then the basic hardcover edition is probably $150, $200. There's a paperback edition that's like 80 or or $100 now. I've lost track of it. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had a fellow on the radio here on KPFK on Intervision named Mitch Horowitz, who was published for, uh, gee, I believe Putnam. I'm not sure of the publishing house, but he published a nice inexpensive version of the secret teachings by um, reducing the size to a standard trade paperback size and then leaving out a lot of the plates, a lot of the color photographs and the extensive uh, illustrations and such. And so he came up with an edition that I think you can buy for 24 $25. And so that's one book you got to know about, and then the other is the one that's uh, just been published or about to be published, and, and that's the one we're talking about. The, the, the Master of the Mysteries, The Secret Life, or Life, I was going to say Lives, but perhaps The Secret Life, of Manly Palmer Hall, Master of the Mysteries, and now just arriving from the grit and grime of the Hollywood Freeway, the author of that book, L.A. Times reporter Lewis Hagen. Hello, Lewis. Nice to be here. I bet it is. You want to just... <sighs> I kind of did that outside. Did you? I took a deep breath, but I'm enjoying the uh, glorious air conditioning in here yeah, <laughs> after good. that miserable ride. Good, good. Well, that happens from time to time. In fact, we were stuck ourselves uh, coming from an entirely different direction, so... And both of us have been in L.A. many years. You're an L.A. Times reporter, right? I'm an L.A. Times reporter of 26 years. You've survived all the cuts of late? I've survived all the cuts and hope to survive many more. I hope you do, too. (laughs) I seem to recall reading some time back that you were part of a small group of reporters at the L.A. Times that was awarded a Pulitzer Prize for your work. Uh, that's correct. Uh-huh. In 1984, I was a part of a group that uh, of Latino journalists, editors, and reporters who won a Pulitzer Prize for a series on the Latinos of Southern California. And uh, I guess one thing about being a newspaper reporter is it's sort of fleeting. Once you do a work like that, it's... It was wonderful. Gone. At the moment, I don't think about it too much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's nice to be able to introduce you as a Pulitzer Prize winning, or Pulitzer Prize. I'm never sure exactly how to say that. Well, I first met you, it must be six, seven years ago. And we had lunch and talked about Manly Palmer Hall. As a matter of fact, you were one of the first people I went to, truth be told. Uh, there were three or four individuals that I wanted to touch base with immediately. When I was just getting my my feet wet in this, getting the lay of the land, it was all new to me. Um, so, you know, um, I had a, a quite a learning curve, uh, particularly when, you know, we're talking about a subject who was as multi, uh, you know, uh, versed as Manly Palmer Hall. Um I could tell you how it all began, if that's I'm all right. I'm interested in knowing, yeah. What a would lot put, of people ask me, how did this start? Yeah, how did you get your, the idea? Yeah, what's your interest in And maybe? why you, yeah. they say, they ask, <laughs> <laughs> of all people. Uh, on September 3rd, 1990, I was working the late shift, the night shift at the LA Times. I was one of the only reporters on duty. It was me, maybe another reporter and an editor, and the phone rang. On a slow night, nothing going on, and a, an excited tipster said, uh, you better get an obituary ready. The the greatest philosopher of all time just died. And I said, yeah, well, who might that be? <laughs> and he said, Manly Palmer Hall. So uh, 
I wrote that down. I went down to our clip file to see what we had on the guy. Uh, and I learned that particularly in the 30s and 40s, we had an extensive clippings file in the LA Times of Manley Palmer Hall, who I really didn't know anything about. But I started in the little bit of time I had because I was looking at a deadline and I me- realized immediately there should be an obituary because this fellow, Manley Palmer Hall, Judging from the clip file we had, was at one time an influential man in Los Angeles. And prolific author. And prolific author, but not just among new esotericists. I mean, he would be, judging from the clips, you know, in uh, just a couple of minutes, I realized that this is a man who reporters went to, like, for uh, advice and insights on the invasion of uh, Pearl Harbor or, uh, you know, the... uh, the, the Cold War or all kinds of things wound up in mainstream, uh, you know, uh, uh, media outlets. As just a pundit of Yeah, as a pundit, exactly. Uh-huh, exactly. So anyway, so I go back to the editor and I say, look, we've got all these files on this fellow. I think we better write something. I called his Philosophical Research Society and spoke with uh, a fellow there who, uh, who gave me a couple of thoughts, a couple of quotes, and I put together a the best I could do in a couple of, in an hour or two time, which was 10 or 12 paragraphs uh, about this man who died mysteriously for me a few days earlier, but it hadn't been reported. Uh, So I left it at that. And uh, as a year or two went by, um, his name would come up here and there. Uh, I found, I remember running across his, his uh, magnum opus, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, for the first time in the living room of a rock and roll drummer who went by the name of Frosty. And Frosty had this book on the coffee table and I said, what, what's this? And he said, well, check it out. I opened it up. And uh, at first it was frankly a little bit spooky. I mean, I didn't know what it was about. It was the, fo- the color plates were somewhat intimidating. All glorious, but strange. And uh, I had no context for it. So anyway, so there was another juncture. And here and there, there were more. Eventually, I started asking questions about this fellow, of people who might know something about him. And then I learned uh, about six years ago that there would never been a biography, that he was a teacher of people as as diverse as... uh, Los Angeles Mayor Sam Yorty, uh, which, by the way, is interesting, so Yorty being one of the most controversial uh, mayors the, in the history of the city. Wouldn't think of him as being a Wouldn't think of it at all. Or, or right. Much less an esotericist. Exactly. You know, um, sort of a crusty old right-winger, as I recall, Sam Yorty. Yes, one who 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 waged divide and conquer and racially tainted campaigns right. to to keep us to to win elections. Um, and but also were, Hollywood people, movie stars. But and, beyond, before I get to them, there were also California Governor Goodwin Knight. I learned was actually a lieutenant governor and an active sitting uh, board member at uh, the Philosophical Research Society. And later, as governor, he was a, a dear friend of Manley's, uh, a guy that Manley could pick up the phone and talk to anytime he wanted. And then later, uh, still later, uh, Manley Hall would advise him on, believe it or not, on uh, astrological questions. Mm. Uh, Goodwin Knight, rep- good Republican governor, who did a lot of wonderful things, uh, actually never made a move without consulting his uh, astrological forecasts. Um, 
So, like the Reagans. So I, well, somewhat. Nancy so, Reagan was, from what I understand, yeah, from yeah. what I understand, so not through Manley, but others. Yeah. So I decided, you know, this. Fe- oh, and of course, there were the the uh, movie stars, of course, and uh, but also not just movie stars. There were important Freemasons in Hollywood who were who were uh, actually the architectures of the the most imposing buildings in the L.A. skyline at the time. I'm talking about the 20s. Uh, Cecil B. DeMille was was an active Mason, uh, the great movie director. Hall knew all of these people, and they all knew him. Um, Some were more public about their relationship with him than others. But I decided that uh, there was a wonderful biography to be told, here and also a uh, a not often heard history of the city of Los Angeles, a metaphysical history, if you will, told through his life and times. So I thought this is a wonderful opportunity to write about this aspect of Los Angeles culture. Some may think it's strange or bizarre or you know inspiring. It doesn't matter to me. He was a fascinating fellow. And part of what made L.A. tick when it was growing up. Let me say that, uh, because I'm sure there are people listening who remember seeing me at PRS. I spoke for years. Um, simply as one who rented the hall, I had no association other than a renter with the Philosophical Research Society or with the Masons. But uh, it just seemed like an appropriate place for somebody who had a radio show and talked about human and uh, potential and personal development. And Manley was, without a doubt, a big influence in my life. I was interested in metaphysics when I moved to Los Angeles. And it just happened to the very first place I moved into was three blocks from the PRS. And I saw the Sphinx in the front yard. And I thought, well, we better check this out. Then they discovered the secret teachings. And, of course, it just uh, unfolds from there. So... I, I want to say for my part that, that Manley was a very prolific author mm-hmm. in many regards in a theosophical tradition. Mm-hmm. If we know of uh, the Blavatsky group, mm-hmm. Blavatsky, Bailey, those people, but also the old uh, medieval theosophists, the Rhineland mystics. Manley knew all the way back to the Hermetic philosophy. And then let's talk about the Masons a little because uh, his... Uh, the only ceremony, really, after his funeral, the only public ceremony was at the Masonic Hall in Wilshire. And Manley was a 33rd degree Mason, but... With that, the Grand Cross. That's Okay, but that's honorary. He never really joined the Masons, did he? Yes, he did join. Did he? Uh-huh. he was an active member. In fact, he stopped writing about the Masons when he joined in 1955. He uh, never wrote about them again. But I want to say one more thing about... I thought about, it was all honorary, given no, that no, he knew uh, more about the Masons than most Masonic uh, members. He did, His although his knowledge of the Masons was blended uh, quite liberally with myths about the Masons, and uh, some of them were fairly uh, wild or hairy, as some some might say. Uh, And maybe we could talk about that in a minute. But I wanted to add one more thing about Hall that really fascinated me, one more very important uh, motivating factor in my decision to devote so much time to uh, putting this book together. I've always been fascinated by individuals who from working class, uh, average working class stock, who left everything behind, reinvented themselves, 
and then had a great impact on culture. People like Henry Miller, who left a bad marriage in New York in the depths of the Depression, went to Paris with a dime and became one of the one of the great one of the one of America's great authors and pro- most prolific authors. People like Gauguin, people like Bob Dylan, people. Uh, uh, well, I would I would add Manley Hall to that list. Really? Manley Hall, if I may mention something about his uh, beginnings. By all means. There's Man- even controversy about his birth. Yes, and that was. You want to go that far back? That, we'll talk about that. That was his fault. Oh, okay. But uh, I, I uh, Manley Hall uh, was uh, the child of a uh, broken marriage. His mother and father were already divorced or separated, I should say. Uh, when he was born in, in uh, Nichols Hospital in Peterborough, Ontario, on March 18, uh, 1902, at the age of, uh, at uh, 5.30 a.m. Um, his mother then, uh, shortly after, almost immediately after he was born, his mother uh, handed the baby over to his grandmother, uh, while well, the mother, Louise, went to Alaska to be do chiropractic work in the Alaskan gold fields mm. during the gold rush at the time. Mm. So Manley was raised for much of his youth by his grandmother, who was peripatetic. They hopscotched together across the American landscape. Um, in fact, it was while reading by candlelight with his grandmother as a child, their favorite author at that time, as boy, it was, they used to read G.E. Henty together, who was, who wrote adventure, uh, novels for young boys. And that was the first, it was in Henty's books that Hall heard words like seer and, uh, and, uh, Buddhism for the first time. His grandmother and his mother had a little bit of a leaning in metaphysical things. So he knew, for example, as a young boy, that his mother had joined the Rosicrucian Fellowship in Oceanside, founded by Max Heindel and his wife Augusta on a bluff overlooking some bean fields. So at the age of 18, a high school dropout uh, without fixed points, who never really knew his parents, Manley Got, came back to L.A. when his grandmother died to rejoin his mother. That was what he came for. At the time, California, Southern California in particular, was you know a place of new beginnings, a place full of uh, immigrants, uh, people try, looking for a new start in a in a land of orange groves and adventure, and uh, room to grow and grow as far as the eye could see. Hall uh, got his calling. Uh, while exploring the uh, the, uh, the Santa Monica Pier, and he came across a little shop with a phrenology sign on it, and there he met his first friend in California. Who That's reading the bumps on your head. Reading the bumps on your head, right. and his new friend was uh, a, a Mr. Brownson, who was a diminutive Civil War veteran and Theosophist and M.D who uh, took a shine to the big kid in his office who started coming by every day. And this little old guy with a big beard and thick lenses and his glasses would regale Manly with stories about reincarnation and Phantom Blavatsky and things like that. He learned fast. And one day the uh, Brownson said, you know, I, I give lectures at the uh, above the bank, in a room above the bank down the street. Why don't you come with me and you can give a lecture too? 
So together they went over one day, and Manley's first lecture was on reincarnation. And uh, together, the uh, Mr. Brownson and Manley Hall collected about 65 cents from the eight people in the audience, <laughs> mostly elderly women. This would have been when? Uh, this would have been in uh, about 1919. He was okay. still, he just got here. He was 18 so he years was, old. He was 18 years old. 18 years okay. old. And uh, they splurged on chocolate sundaes at a drugstore nearby. <laughs> and that was how he got his start. Next, within a matter of two years, he took over the Church of the People, which was a high-profile church at the time with a very diverse congregation. And by 1923, he was ordained a minister, and uh, the the congregation honored him with a uh, fist-sized cross encrusted with diamonds and uh, also with Rosicrucian symbols made of white platinum, I mean platinum and white uh, enamel and diamonds and uh, other gemstones and these ornate uh, esoteric carvings. Hall wore that for the rest of his life on his chest. Where is that now? It's in the uh, Philosophical Research Society in a, in a safe place. <laughs> okay. <in> a safe <laughs> Let's place. leave it at that. Well, this is something I want to revisit, and I do want to reintroduce you. You'll have to forgive the interruption. But, oh, sure. uh, uh, there is question about... Uh, you know, what happened to Manly stuff. Some of it is missing. A lot of it's at the Getty. Some of it is still at PRS. We was, could do that now if you like. Well, let me reintroduce you because we okay. got people tuning in. All right. Uh, and I want to be sure they know who they're listening to. This is Lewis Hagen. He's an L.A. Times reporter who I met about six or seven years ago as he began to research the book we're talking about today. And you finally got a copyright on it, so we can talk about it. We've been waiting to do this for a time. Any idea on the actual date of publication? Uh, the publisher tells me that the book is uh, scheduled for spring of 2008. Okay. Good. So this is your – really, This is this the first time you've talked about this publicly? Yes. Okay, good. Appreciate you being here. Sure. It's going to be called The Master of the Mysteries, okay? What a nice title. I like the alliteration. The Master of the Mysteries, The Secret Life of Manly Palmer Hall. And a great title since Hall is best known for having written some 80 years ago, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, a book that a lot of us really cut our teeth on. We didn't even know how to spell Kabbalah in in those days. Now, uh, I wonder what Manley would think about uh, the Kabbalah Center in the west side of town, and and what and, and what he would think of, of what's happened to the Bodhi tree, and so on and so forth. You know, this guy really bridges the 19th and uh, and 21st centuries. I mean, he was an icon of esoterica in the in the uh, in the 20th century. So Lewis is with us, and uh, we're going to be here till 2 o'clock. I hope we have time for telephone calls. Brooks is our producer, 818-985-5735. If you have a question for Lewis about the life of Manly P. Hall or about the Philosophical Research Society, Manly died under very mysterious circumstances. Again, there's the mystery again. Born in a mystery, lived about mysteries, and died in uh, in a mystery, too. We'll talk more about that with Lewis Hagen, 818-985-5735. We'll go to the phones in just a minute. Um, yeah, there's so much that I want to ask you about because this is not just a puff piece. I know in many ways you're an admirer of Manly, as so many of us are, but you've also written some stuff that maybe some folks 
really don't want to know about Manley. Well, the truth is, the truth is, um, he's a human being. Manley Hall was very much a human being, and he was also, however, a victim of the uh, uh, wishful thinking of uh, so many of his followers throughout his life. And I think, to a degree, he he succumbed to that after a while. He he no he couldn't help it. I mean, people were. I've heard when I began my research, for example. People who knew him for decades were whispering, uh, you know, secretly about how, well, you know, uh, Mr. Hall was, uh, you know, he was a hermaphrodite, don't you? Uh, he was so advanced an adept that he actually manifested both male and female, uh, you know, physical attributes, much like the, uh, you know, the great adepts he wrote about. And I would not say I, I, I noted, you know, in my notes as I was taking notes in these interviews that, um, hmm, uh, I, I happen to have his, uh, the autopsy photos and that's, uh, absolutely not true. <laughs> but, well, uh, he there did were, gained uh, weight in the later years. He probably had what today we call man boobs, you know, and he, he did have a pretty good, he, he was a, very pear shaped, wasn't he? Manley Hall was actually, uh, something of a, of a, of an enormous avocado. Um, he was six foot four. He had, um, uh, you know, mesmerizing eyes, uh, the chiseled features of a Barrymore, I think you could say, uh, but with an extraordinarily wide bottom, which he had all his life. His weight problems were exacerbated by thyroid gland issues. His thyroid was actually removed in 1940, but against his doctor's wishes, all his life, he binged on uh, peculiarly, I believe, cheap sweets. He uh, really loved donuts and malted milk balls. And when people would offer, you know, the good stuff, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he would always reach for, you know, the Tootsie Rolls. And, uh, you know, that's that's what he was. That's what he did. And to his detriment, it was a it, his weight issues were exacerbated by his thyroid problems. Now, he told people here and there, that he had contracted, uh, he explained his obesity by saying that he had contracted elephantiasis while uh, studying with a guru in India in the 1920s. Um, That was, of course, not true, according to his physician, who I interviewed. Probably the most mysterious part of Manley's life is how it ended. And his wife believed to her death not so long ago, Marie lived to be 101, a hundred mm-hmm. years old, and then some. She was very clear that her husband, Manley Hall, was murdered. Uh, and I believe it's still an open case. It is an open case at the Los Angeles Police Department. I've actually examined the homicide file. So what's the story on that? What's, what's your conclusion? Um, it's extremely complicated, so complicated and so mysterious that uh, homicide charges were never filed, although LAPD believes he was he was murdered. Um, essentially, around 1987, at the age of 86, Manley Hall had what, uh, by all accounts, was uh, a, a, a small stroke that impaired him somewhat. Yes, he could still take to the stage and give those classic Manly Hall lectures of 90 minutes and not a second longer without a sip of water or notes on some of the most arcane subjects uh, 
ever ever studied um but he uh he wasn't quite the same fellow that very year uh a, a another man a caretaker came into his life who built himself as a uh, an expert in alternative medicine and also in esoteric schools this is donald fritz Daniel Fritz. Daniel, I'm sorry. Yes, it is. And uh, I need he, your book, is what I. <laughs> he, he came. He, <laughs> he came into Manley's life and Marie's life, I might add. Now Marie, and it's important to point out. And one of the one of the uh, one of the things that bedeviled uh, the police investigators was Marie's uh, role in all of this. Uh, this uh, his uh, sad demise. Manley Hall by this time was suddenly, after not caring too much about his legacy for 20 years or so, or even even the condition of the Philosophical Research Society and his fabled library of 30,000 volumes and his esoteric treasures, uh, uh, physical treasures, um, he suddenly got a yen, a very powerful yen, to turn things around, to turn his health around, to save his legacy, to somehow, um, you know, leave his imprint, not just among esotericists, but as an important figure in the history of Los Angeles. Daniel Fritz said, I can help you with all of those things. Marie, Manley's wife, had uh, made a career out of trying to find something she called the Bruton Vault, which she said uh, was a uh, a buried vault, uh, secretly a vault buried secretly on the East Coast by Francis Bacon in the 16th in the 17th century, and that uh, this said vault contained the secrets to uh, world peace. It was a zany, wacky idea, but uh, it was her idea, and she made a career out of it, and she had a lot of followers. Daniel Fritz said, I can help you with that too, Marie. I can teach you how to use a computer because there's an emerging global elect, uh, electronic network we now call uh, the Internet. And we can get you and your, your Bruton Vault work out on the Internet and uh, the whole world will know soon. So she could not wait to uh, incorporate uh, Daniel Fritz and his assistants into their lives. So he went immediately to work. He bought a spa. He had manly eating so drinking so much carrot juice he literally turned orange <laughs> he put him on diets he lost a hundred pounds uh, he uh, Marie was uh, you know in the other room uh, on learning the computer and uh, for her Bruton vault efforts uh, the problem was that Manley's friends quickly saw that uh, I mean did not fail to note I should say that Daniel Fritz had also, rightly or wrongly, had taken over, had been given control of their finances. Now, he also, he could write checks on Manley's account. He power of attorney. Power of attorney. And, um, but things went uh, very downhill from there, um, steeply downhill. Again, rightly or wrongly, uh, he also had Manley on uh, certain enema Treatments that were uh, gleaned from the writings of a of a 1940s uh, mystic named Edmund Zakeli, who claimed he got them from some Essene text that was secretly given to him by 
someone in the secret archives of the Vatican. Uh, I interviewed Zekeli's wife, by the way, who's still around, and she said that was all nonsense. Hmm. Nonetheless, uh, he had Manley on these uh, enema treatments, some uh, way more than the doctor, Manley's real doctor, was comfortable with. And he warned Manley over and over, you got to watch this with your weight, with your health problems. It'll throw your electrolytes out of balance and whatnot. Manley Hall and uh, Dan Fritz, though, felt they knew better, and they found references to that and other medical techniques that they were using in some of the old books that Manley had touted um, uh, for his entire life. Paracelsus, uh, the medieval uh, alchemist uh, physician who did some good things but also had some pretty wild ideas about medicine. Well, Manley and Daniel were putting those wild ideas to work. And Probably some John Dee in there, too, the Queen Elizabeth's magician. There who, was some John Dee in there, and it got really, really strange. Yeah. Uh, among other things, for example, by the, by the end, uh, they were mixing samples per Paracelsian uh, tradition and techniques. This is medieval alchemy, in other yeah, words. Mixing yeah, mixing samples of urine and dribbling it down the eastern facing side of a tree in Manley's backyard while ants were on, making sure the ants were on the tree, following these prescriptions by this medieval alchemist. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people were extremely alarmed by these things, and uh, they told Manley so. But Manley was so ill and so dependent on this caretaker by that time that he did, in fact, say quite literally, let it be. I've got no one else to take care of me. Dan is helping us out. And maybe he was, but did he have anybody, it was also strange. Did he have anybody? He became so cloistered in those final years. And Fritz... Uh, Seemed as if he was the, the the protector of Manley. Was there anybody else beside Marie that could get close to Manley in those final years? In the final years, it was very difficult for anyone to get close to Manley. Now, Dan Fritz believed that he was. It was all in Manley's best interests that Manley not be bothered, that he not be upset with negative news or tidings, and that he was really trying to help. But others looked at the situation and said, oh, my goodness, we've got a really scary problem here. Um, Regardless of who was right, uh, that was the situation. Um, So um, uh, eventually, uh, right near the end, Dan talked, persuaded Manley Hall and Marie to invest uh, more than $200,000 in a in a Essenian uh, enema device that he was going to market and then put the profits back into PRS and save Manley's legacy with new literary productions and the like. Hmm. And uh, they both signed. Six days before Manley died, he had Manley sign a new... Uh, a new uh, document that superseded Manley's 20-year-old last will and testament, which gave Dan uh, full control of uh, all of the books and all of the land and all of the treasures, which were valued at that time at about $5 million. Again, Dan's story to the police was, 
look, at, I was getting ready for this man's demise. He couldn't do it. I was helping him. This was a way of protecting all that he'd worked for and all that he had, the land, the books, etc. And we and, should point out that Fritz has passed since now. Daniel Fritz is no longer alive. Dan Fritz died in 2001 of uh, adrenal cancer which is uh, one of the rarest forms of cancer. It strikes uh, two in a million people. Mm. And he died of, uh, of uh, adrenal cancer up in, uh, well, he learned he had it uh, after he was uh, pretty much pushed out of PRS after a, a, a quite a, a bare knuckles uh, uh, civil case against him. Uh, and not to mention uh, homicide uh, allegations. Um, he went up to... Uh, he uh, pretty much uh, went off the grid and moved into a uh, uh, an old uh, mining camp on the Oregon-California border where he would go into local uh, drugstores and talk about the evil medical establishment in the United States and the war that is coming, etc. And uh, he found out he had cancer. His doctors told him to uh, that he needed chemotherapy and radiation treatment and the like. But he, uh, of course, not surprisingly, turned them down, and he said, thank you, but I know how to, I can treat this myself. And with, uh, he started eating copious quantities of grapeseed 50 and, you know, antioxidants and some other chemicals that uh, federal authorities believe actually cause cancer. Mm -hmm. And uh, his cancer got much worse, and he finally died in a little, uh, in a Reno motel room near a uh, uh, the doctor that he was seeing at the time. Ignoble death. And uh, Fritz was never a Mason, or was he? Was he was Fr not a Mason. He was not a Mason. But he okay. did study under, or he said he claimed he studied under a long series of what I call second-tier uh, uh, spiritual leaders. Uh, like there was one guy that he was very close to who preached, uh, <laughs> strange as it sounds, uh, helping women to give birth near dolphins with a goal of uh, creating a new super race of ultra-wise, ultra-intelligent humans. Those are the kinds of people that Dan Fritz was hanging with and learning from until he met Hall, who was uh, you know, the last one that he sidled up to. KPFK and your radio, it's Intervision with Michael Benner, my guest today, Louis Sahagan. Lewis has written a book, a biography, the definitive biography of what is certainly the most prolific uh, contemporary esotericist, 20th century philosopher Manly P. Hall. And the book is called, it'll be out in the spring, uh, Master of the Mysteries, beautiful title, Master of the Mysteries, The Secret Life of Manly Palmer Hall. And uh, let's take a couple of telephone calls, Lewis. If you put those headphones on, sure. you'll be able to hear our caller. And we'll go to Van Nuys to begin. John, you're on KPFK with my guest, Lewis Hagen. Hiya, John. You there? John? Great show. Um, I was uh, Lately in the news, there's been quite a bit of, uh, uh, well, news and alternative news and uh, other theories, uh, especially with the, the, the uh, non-local powers of the world about some uh, possible blending of the, the Freemasons with some uh, uh, Luciferians for uh, privilege control and elitist control. And I wonder how benevolent actually the Freemasons were. Uh, there's been a lot of, of uh, discussion 
with them privileged, uh, privileging themselves with uh, elite departure from uh, rigid uh, confines to the law and having some, some privilege of their own. I wonder what the author discovered about the, uh, the darker side of the Freemasons as a uh, elitist uh, privilege group and uh, the possible blending of them with some of the Luciferians for uh, power control. Great question. I get this a lot. Thanks, John. Go ahead. I mean, they're the Masons. Are they good guys, bad guys, or a blend of <laughs> all kinds of folks? I have no idea. Okay. I can only tell you what Manly Hall sought to get from them, and that I know a little bit about. I did not. I, I know nothing about. I don't. I have no idea what that question you know, means to really suggest. I didn't look there. I don't know anything about it. However, Hall saw the Masons as a, uh, a way, a group uh, dedicated to uh, providing the means and techniques and even lifestyle for, self, for continuing self-improvement, uh, to be a better father, to be a better citizen, to be a better person. Um, and th- th- and he saw it also as a uh, you know uh, an outgrowth of similar uh, philosophies that first came into on the scene back in ancient Greece. And I'm thinking of uh, yeah. I'm thinking of Pythagoras, and I'm thinking of Plato. Plato, the Neoplatonists. Sure, and the Neoplatonists, absolutely. And uh, now the darkest side that uh, I know anything about. Is that uh, the the uh, the Masons and Hall was questioned a lot about this, particularly during the 1960s. Is hey, uh, what's this I hear about them not admitting women? <laughs> and he had to answer for that because uh, in his early writings, they, he he wrote rapturously, gloriously about these you know these this uh, men's group that. Uh, uh, put everything on the line uh, to with a goal of uh, improving society and you know becoming perhaps enlightened. Uh, later, particularly with his wife, second wife Marie, who was uh, an avowed uh, feminist and even a uh, an aggressive feminist, <laughs> if you know what I mean, uh, he had to do a lot of backpedaling on that point. You know. Uh... Across town, over in Figaro, we've got the uh, Boda Group, the builders of the Adidum or builders of the Adidum. This uh, is related to the Order of the Golden Dawn, and one of their members was Aleister Crowley. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a guy who, you know, was, I guess, a white magician for most of his life and sort of turned to the dark side. And, mm-hmm. and you've come up with a link to the Jet Propulsion Lab, Actually, I didn't come up with that, but I did come up with a link between Manley and Aleister Crowley. And okay, I'll, I'll tell, tell you, us about I'll, that. I'll tell you what it is. First, the lab. Uh, it has been, there have been a number of books in recent years about Jack Parsons, who was a co-founder of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, a rocket scientist by day and a uh, Crowleyan <laughs> sex magician by night. Now, this is not Parsons Construction, which is no, also no, no, in no. Pasadena. This is the founder of the Jet Propulsion. That's lab. correct. Okay. A co-founder, uh-huh. But at night, after hours, he was a sex magician. So uh, in, in, in the Crowley School. Now Hall, it turns out, uh, you know, being a, uh, a collector all his life of stamps, of coins, of Buddhist uh, relics, of pottery, and uh, esoteric writings, inc- you know, that were available, including Crowley's. Manley had a collection 
of Crowley's works, uh, he always had it in his vault. And it was, he told his librarians all his life, this is off limits to the public. I have it. I look at it among the other things I study. But this isn't for public view. He also had a poem by Aleister Crowley, which he kept in the top drawer of his desk in his office. And it's a rather crude and rude poem, if I say so myself, as you can imagine, coming from uh, Aleister Crowley. And Hall was asked, why, hey, why, Manly, why do you even have that thing in here? What's up with that? And he, his answer was something along the lines of, well, I keep it here to remind myself of how low humans can go in the name <laughs> of art. <laughs> That's like saying I have the Playboys for the articles. <laughs> I, I, really, I know, think you got it. Yeah, okay. In his Victorian yes. uh, sensibility, it was probably akin to having a Playboy in the drawer. Yeah. Uh, I know he was familiar with Jung and Carl Jung familiar with Manly. Incidentally, I might add, I found, I did look into the Crowley business and found no connection whatsoever between Hall and the Crowley crowd in Los Angeles. And if anything... Uh, you know, Crowley's people would have thought Manley was too uh, milk toast for them. Yeah, too wimpy. Yeah, Let's too try wimpy. Jason. Let's go to Jason in uh, Chatsworth. You're on KPFK with my guest, Louis Sahagan. Hey, Michael. Hey, Jason. Uh, great show as always. Boy, you know, I just happened to turn it on when I was sitting here working for putting some coin lots together because I, too, uh, collect coins and I <laughs> sell them each week. But I also had my copy of... The Encyclopedic Outline of Masonic, Hermetic, Kabbalistic, and Rosicrucian Symbological Philosophy, which is by Manuel Hall. I think that's what you're speaking of, right? The book? Well, The Secret Teachings of All Ages has that as a subtitle, I think. Yes, yeah, right. Uh, one of the things about this book that immediately interested me, this was a reprint that came out in 75 that I picked up when I was in Berkeley, uh, was the front uh, picture piece, not of Manley, after Manley, it was uh, the... Uh, Prince Ragoski of Transylvania, the Comte de Saint-Germain, who allegedly was one of the more successful alchemists who uh, not only was able to turn lead objects and pewter objects into gold in front of crowds to please uh, the kings that were keeping him in their castles at the time, but uh, he also supposedly had uh, the elixir of life, which is allegedly how he supposedly was seen in Europe for a period somewhere between three and four hundred years. Any uh, comments on that? The Philosopher's Stone, so to speak. Exactly. No comment on that? Uh, Well, I don't, you know, I don't, you know, I don't buy that. I think uh, that's uh, the foolish side of uh, metaphysics, that kind of thing. Manley did preach that on occasion, uh, that kind of thing, and that in particular. But I think, you know, Manley's story, if, I think in my mind, you know, it was, Manley died, I I think in part because of the, the, the foolish side of esoteric notions uh, played a large role in his uh, rather difficult demise. I might add, I think Manley's life in general was wonderful. He had a heck of a great time. Let me say the promotion of deliberately false information is part of the secret tradition, like keeping double books and putting out phony information. Mm. And, yeah, that's uh, true. But, you know, uh, I, have, I have to take one more call. This is yeah, a caller well, I want to bring one on. One point but... to finish. Uh, the thing that killed me about alchemy, of course, we all thought that was pretty stupid, people turning lead into but if you look at the atomic chart, lead and gold are right next to each other. We're talking about a change of a few electrons. Yeah, well, that was so a I'm metaphor not, for the development that of consciousness. Impossible. 
Thanks for calling. I've okay. got to take this next one in Los Angeles, Basil. And, Basil, you say you worked with Manley for almost two decades? Indeed, I did, Michael. Well, uh, uh, Manley was actually a close personal friend of mine, and I knew him very well indeed. Well, meet Louis Sahagan. Uh, yes, I've never met Mr. Sahagan in person, but he's called me on the phone a number of times. Um, I object very much to his approach towards Manley Hall. I was often a guest in Manley Hall's home, and I worked with him each day during the week in his office for several hours, and at noontime I would speak to him. Basil, I have so little time that I'm going to ask you to cut to the chase. Yes, what do you most object to? I feel that what to? Mr. Sahagan is presenting is not accurate. He did not know Manley Hall. And I think that Mr. Sahagan's work is nothing but a piece of fiction, essentially, which he's concocted. Okay, you, you know you're talking to an L.A. Times reporter. Is That's that... correct. I used to be the director of the Fowler Foundation Museum before it went to UCLA, so I have something of a background as well. Well, could you give me a specific area where you think Mr. Sahagan is writing fiction? Uh, he relates a lot of stories that really are pretty odious, which have nothing to do with reality at all. He's, uh, so you only object to the negative stuff? You think it would be a better piece if he looked only at the positive stuff? I do indeed, because Mr. Hall was a man of the highest caliber, very dedicated to the uplift of humanity. Yeah. Uh, his interest at the end of his life, I edited more than eight of his books and more than a hundred of his articles. Okay, I'm going to give Lewis a chance to respond before we close the show. Up. May I say in conclusion, though, he was interested very much particularly in what he called self-unfoldment for the individual finding yes. their greatest capacity. And he, again, I'd like to say that he, um, people impute to him all of these uh, strange aspects from the side. He was a man who had great curiosity and everything, but it doesn't mean that he subscribed to all these things. Well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but I think oh, that... I uh, say I knew him very well indeed, and both he and his wife were close friends of mine. He and his wife were friends years. of ours, and I've been in his home. I was married in his home, and I think he is a remarkable man, but also complex. Yes, that's And I appreciate true. your phone call. Yes. Thanks. Louis? Well, I, I think, uh, number one, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, Basel's book um, on Manley Hall. Uh, and number two, um, Manley knew his market. And he wrote, I think, a pablum or junk for, for the masses. And he wrote some very extraordinary material for people who, were, uh, who could handle it and absorb it and use it. And uh, looking for the, that gold is, uh, is a, half the fun of Manly Hall. Yeah, there's no question about Manley's contribution. And, and if, if everything that you say that's on the negative side or the dark side is true or not, it doesn't really diminish in any way his not at contribution. All. And I know not at 